Well, my whole family woke up again this morning, and there's still oxygen to breathe this morning, and my water still worked this morning again. The sun came up again, and the car worked again. There's food to eat in the fridge again. And I still have a job, I think, again. And sometimes it's just very easy to look at all of that and how it just it just takes place. It's just happening. It's easy to take a look at the world and all the things that happen as just merely a conglomeration of natural actions and reactions and processes and choices and consequences. And it's very easy to look around and see a world without God. It's very easy to look around and think that that well, this just happens and it just goes the way it's always gone and it'll continue to go that way and there's just natural processes and even if God is out there, He's not really involved in what's going on down here. And even Christians sometimes, despite our belief in God and our belief in His Word, can on a very practical level forget about God and live day to day as if we're on our own. And live day to day as if we live on a godless world. That's just all too easy to slip into that kind of mindset. And once we do, the consequences can truly be tragic in our personal lives and in our churches. But there's a story in Scripture that I think helps us understand, helps us see what the world looks like to us, and yet provides us with the hint that, no, God really is here. And that's the story of Esther. I want to spend a few moments this morning talking about the story of Esther. I, I just want us to see how the story is unfolded. And then I want us to see God's involvement, and then I want us to take a look at some lessons that we can learn from that. Some things that we need to apply to our lives every day to understand that, in fact, God is involved. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty and glorious Father in heaven, we love you so much because you are the awesome God. You are the great and loving God who has created all things, and it's by your power that this world is sustained. It is through you that we live and breathe and have our very being. Father, it is because of you that we're able to walk and that we're able to eat and we're able to talk and we're able to be here this morning. And we're thankful for that mercy that you have bestowed upon us. We understand that without you, we could do nothing, we would be nothing, and we would be going nowhere. And we pray that your hand will guide us and help us to make wise choices about how to serve you and how to glorify you and to how to spread the borders of your kingdom. We pray that you will help us as individuals to make those wise choices and as a congregation to make those wise choices. Help us, Father, to lean on you and to cast our cares and our anxieties upon you and help us to honor you no matter how you work in our lives and in this congregation. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for loving us and we pray that you would be with us this morning and extend your mercy by helping us to understand your word and to allow it to inspire in us submission and surrender and meekness that we might glorify and honor you. Father, thank you for being involved. Thank you for being with us. We know that you never leave us. And we pray that you will strengthen us to never leave you. Father, we love you, and we are, we are so thankful for your love. Through your Son we pray. Amen. 
Uh, most of us know the story of Esther, but let's just go through it again. I'm not going to read all of the chapters, but just kind of highlight the story of Esther as we know it and as it is conveyed in the book of Esther. We know in Esther chapter 1 that the whole story begins that Ahasuerus is having a banquet and the men were in one place and the women were in another place and Ahasuerus wanted his wife, the queen, Vashti, to come out and display herself and she refused to do it and because of that he put her away. And the nobles and the officials said to him that he needed to replace her and find someone else. And so the competition was on. Women from all over the land were vying to be the new queen. Well, there was a Jew, and his name was Mordecai, and he'd been raising his cousins, whom we know as Esther. And he wanted her to have a shot at this great position. And so he gave her into the hands of Haggai, who was the king's official over these young ladies, and she found favor with this king's official. She found favor with this king's official, and so Haggai began to give her advice and began to give her all that she needed. And when it finally came time for her to go into the king, she took nothing but what Haggai had said, this is what you need to take. And she, out of all the young ladies, pleased the king more than anyone else and was selected as the queen. However, no one knew what people she came from because Mordecai had told her, don't, don't tell them that you're a Jewess. And so nobody knew. Now sometime while this was going on, or maybe shortly thereafter, Mordecai would go and sit in the king's gate and waiting to hear news of Esther. And while he was there, he overheard a couple of men plotting to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And he went to Esther and he reported it and he got back to the king. And the king investigated and found out that in fact there was a plot on his wife and the men were executed. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and the king was saved. However, nothing was done for Mordecai at that time. It was just his civic duty, and so they just let it go. But they recorded it in the chronicles of the king, and everybody went about their business. Well, as Mordecai sat in the king's gate, of course, the king's officials would come and go, and they would see him. And one official, who had been lifted up above all the others, who essentially seemed to be second in the kingdom, was Haman. Haman had a real arrogance problem. Haman really thought of himself highly, more highly than anyone else. And as he walked out one day, everybody around was bowing, except Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow. When asked why he refused to bow, he simply said, because I'm a Jew. And that angered Haman, but Haman having such intense arrogance and pride, egomania. He didn't want to just seek vengeance on Mordecai. The reason Mordecai wouldn't bow is because Mordecai was a Jew. And of course what that means is anybody who was a Jew would also avoid giving him honor. And so he just wanted to wipe him out of the people. And he went to Ahasuerus and he said, Ahasuerus, there's a group of people in this land and they do not live by your laws and they do not honor you and they need to be wiped out. And if, if you'll let me write a law that on a certain day I can go and wipe them out, I'll put 10,000, you know, whatever the unit of money was there, 10,000 pieces of silver and put it in your coffers. And Ahasuerus says, oh, that sounds good. He doesn't know. He, he doesn't know who he's talking about. He didn't even know what the people were, but he said, sure, go ahead. 
And then Mordecai found out. And the Jews found out. And there was weeping and there was wailing. And Mordecai goes around in sackcloth and in ashes. And Esther hears about it and she calls to find out. Uh, she sends someone to find out what's going on. And Mordecai says, here's the law. Haven't you heard? Here's what you need to do. Go into the king. Stop it. But of course, Esther said, well, I can't do that. You know the law. The law says that if you come in to see the king and he has in front of you that the only law is death, unless he holds out the golden scepter. And I haven't been summoned to him in a long, long time. And I, that would be taking my life into my own hands. I'm not going to do that. And Mordecai sent back to her what we read moments ago. Do you think that just because you're in the palace that you'll survive? Oh, no. You and your father's house will be judged. Deliverance will come from somewhere. But maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you're here for a time such as this. And so Esther said, all right, I'll do it. She asked Mordecai to get all the Jews in the capital city of Susa to fast for her on her behalf. And she and her handmaidens would fast and then she would go in. And after three days of fasting, she went into the king. And the king held out his scepter. And he said to her, what do you want up to half of my kingdom? I'll give it to you. And she said, I just want you to come to a feast. I just want you to come to a dinner. I want you and Haman to come to a dinner. So they came to the dinner and Ahasuerus knew there was more. And he said to her, whatever you want, Esther, make your petition now up to half of my kingdom. And she said, you know what? I just want you to come to another feast tomorrow and bring Haman along with you. And so they did. And Haman was excited and Haman went home and, and he was so happy because he was the only one that was allowed to come to this feast other than Ahasuerus and Esther. But he saw Mordecai on the way and Mordecai again didn't bow and scrape before him. And so despite the great joy of being the insider on the feast with the king and the queen, he was still upset and angry. And he vented and he was vexed. And his family said, here's what you do. Go build you a gallows that's, that's so tall that everybody can see it and let's make a spectacle of Mordecai and hang him on those gallows. Go to the king and see if he'll let you do that. And so he started constructing some gallows. And early in the morning he went to the king to get permission to hang Mordecai. Unbeknownst to him, however, Ahasuerus had been unable to sleep. And just coincidentally, they had brought out the chronicles of the king, because you can imagine that might be like chloroform in action. And they started reading it to him, and just so happened to open to the page that told of the plot that Haman had revealed and saved him. And Ahasuerus was roused and said, wait a minute, did we ever do anything for him? And they searched the chronicles and they said, no, nothing's been done for him. He said, we need to honor this man. This man saved my life. We need to do something for him. Go see who's out in the courts. And they walked out and Haman was out there coming to ask to have Mordecai executed on these large gallows that he was building. And the Hashers brought Haman in. He said, Haman, I want to honor somebody. How should the king honor somebody in whom he delights to honor? And Haman, of course, being arrogant, he decided, well, the king couldn't want to honor anybody but me. I mean, of all the subjects in the entire kingdom, who would be more worthy of honor than me? And so he said, here's what I think you should do. I think you should take a robe that the king has worn and place it on his shoulder. Take a horse upon whom the king has ridden and allow him to ride on the horse and then take one of the highest nobles of the land. 
than have them lead around and say, hey, this is what the king does for the person he wants to honor. And before he could ask to kill Mordecai, the king says, that sounds good. I want you to get Mordecai and put a robe on him, put him on the horse, and you lead him around and say, here's what the king does for the person that he wants to honor. Haman does it, and in disgrace, he goes back to his home. And his family, who earlier had said, you know what you need to do is you need to kill Mordecai. You need to build a gallows, and you get permission from the king to kill him. They said, um, you know, actually, if he's a Jew, you're probably not going to come out ahead on this one. And about that moment, the messenger came to bring him to the feast for that day with Esther and Mordecai. With Esther and Hasherus. I'll get the names right here in a minute. They come in and the king says, Esther, today, please, whatever it is that you want, let your request be made known and I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she said, my people have been sold. Had it just been slavery, I wouldn't say anything. It wouldn't be worth bringing it to your attention, but they've been sold to slaughter. Well, the king had no idea what she was talking about. What are you talking about? Who's doing this? Now remember, he was the one that said Haman could kill a people and it doesn't even make a connection with him. Who's doing this? And she says, Haman's the man. And Ahasuerus is filled with anger and to compose himself leaves the room. Haman is filled with fear and falls upon Esther begging for mercy. And when the king comes back in, it looks like he's accosting Esther. And he says, will he attack her in my own house? And he sentences Haman to be hung upon his own gallows. And he lifts Mordecai up to the position that Haman had. And because it was a law among the Persians that you could not repeal a law that the king had signed, he did not repeal the destruction of the Jews, but instead wrote another law that said the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. And so on the day that those among Persia who wanted to wipe out the Jews attacked, the Jews were able to take up arms against them and kill 75,000 of their enemies. And on that day, they established a celebration known as Purim that actually has continued to be celebrated even to today by those who continue to practice the Jewish faith. Now, there's something very interesting about that story. We didn't read the text, but did you notice that as we told that story, not one single time was God mentioned? We don't see the hand of God in any of that. There's not any mention of the law of God. There's not any mention of the will of God, and that's the way it is in the text. Despite the fact that Esther is in the Bible, not one time is God mentioned in the entire book. Not one time is his law mentioned. When Mordecai says why he doesn't bow down before Haman, it's not because God's law says, it's just, I'm a Jew. There's nothing mentioned about God. And so, it's very easy if someone wants to, to read the story of Esther and see it the exact same way we might see the world around us. Just a series of happy chances, coincidences, reactions and consequences, choices, And it just all happens naturally and we don't need to have God involved. But in reality, though God is not specifically mentioned, I believe the book of Esther leaves no doubt that God is involved. But we have to know how to look. There are hints in this book that demonstrate to us that God is involved. And I just want to show three of them. I'm sure that there's more. But right in the central part of the book, almost in the exact middle, not quite in the exact middle, but almost in the exact middle, is the passage 
where Esther and Mordecai have their exchange. And I want us to read it again. This is in Esther chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. I think there's three things in that passage, three hints that let us understand that Esther and Mordecai they knew God was involved. They knew it was not just a happy mistake. They knew it was not just chance and natural reaction. They knew God was involved. And we need to recognize that as well. The very first test that we need to see here is that Mordecai said, if you don't do this, deliverance will rise for the Jews. Why did Mordecai say that? I want you to think for just a moment. If Mordecai did not believe in God's involvement, what kind of argument would he have made? Esther, if you don't do this, the Jews might die. You're our only hope. You've got the closest, you're closest to the king. You've got the king's ear. You're the one that needs to go. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, Esther, if you don't do this, we might die. He said, look, deliverance is going to come from somewhere. We are going to be delivered. Why could Mordecai say that? Because of Mordecai's faith in God. Because Mordecai understood that if they were delivered, it wasn't going to be Esther who delivered them. No matter what her involvement was, he understood that deliverance ultimately came from someplace else. Do you see that? He didn't think deliverance came from Esther. He believed deliverance came from somewhere else. That would happen one way or another. This was not wishful thinking. This was not fanciful hope. This was confirmed conviction and faith in a higher power who was watching over his people whom he knew would take care of his people. Mordecai understood that deliverance didn't come from Esther. It came from somewhere else. Where did that somewhere else be? From him? From the strength of the Jewish people? From luck? From chance? No, Mordecai understood that deliverance comes from God. Mordecai knew this wasn't chance. Mordecai knew this wasn't actions and consequences and natural reactions. Mordecai knew that if deliverance would come, it would come from God. He understood God was involved. The second thing we need to recognize is this statement, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Think about that statement for a moment. Who knows? But maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, we don't know, but maybe you were brought here on purpose. You get that? Maybe you were brought here on purpose. Now, the only way you could be brought here on purpose is if there was someone purposing to bring you here. 
She couldn't have been brought here on purpose by coincidence. She couldn't have been brought here on purpose by accident. She couldn't have been brought here on purpose by blind forces that just happily accidentally brought this to be about. He says, who knows, but maybe this is exactly why you've been brought here. And what Mordecai demonstrates is that he believed that there was someone behind all of this that was causing things to work out in such a way. Now, he didn't know. He couldn't say for sure that he knew that this is what God was doing. But he's saying, who knows, but maybe this is why you're here. Maybe the entire purpose behind this is so that you'll be here at the exact right moment. What is Mordecai saying he believes? He believes there's someone behind the scenes that is purposing what's going on. There's someone doing this on purpose. It's not Esther, it's not Mordecai, and it's not chance, it's not faith. Who would that be? Who would Mordecai believe is the one behind the scenes that might have brought Esther here for just this purpose and did it on purpose? Well, that would be God. You see what Mordecai believes? Mordecai believes, now he's not sure if God is doing it. What he's saying is, I don't know what God's mind is. I don't know what God's will is. But maybe this is what God has in mind. He's doing this on purpose. And then the third thing, the third hint is Esther's response. And she asks Mordecai and the Jews of Susa, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Hold a fast on my behalf. For me. If this is all just accidental, if this is all just happenstance, if this is all just choices and reactions and consequences and just natural processes taking place, what good would fasting for her do? Really, if it's all just natural reactions and consequences and choices and and natural processes taking place, going without food for three days is really a bad idea. After you've gone without food for three days, you're not thinking very clearly. You're not very strong. Why, why ask him to go without food for three days on her behalf? I want you to hone in on that. On her behalf. If all we're talking about here is going without food, How can anybody do that on somebody else's behalf? I can't fast on your behalf. I can't go hungry for you. I can't can't fast over here while you're eating and do it on your behalf. That, That just can't happen. I believe the reason why this says fast on her behalf is because there's an understanding about what this fasting is all about. Fasting in the Scripture is abstaining from physical needs in order to devote yourself to spiritual action. And so when Esther is asking him to fast on her behalf, she's not just saying, go hungry for me for three days. She's asking them to, this is so important, instead of eating, I want you to be going to God on my behalf for these three days. I'm about to go into the king, and the law is that I'm going to die unless he holds out that scepter. And instead of taking the next three days to fulfill your physical needs, I need you to devote it to spiritual activity on my behalf. Why? So that when I walk into that room, God will be with me. You see, Esther and Mordecai both recognize 
they both recognized that there was someone else involved in this whole story. You can look at the story and you can see it as a godless story. You can see it as happy uh, happy coincidence. You can see it as natural processes or you can see it as Esther and Mordecai saw it. That there was someone behind the scenes who would deliver, who was purposing all of this, to whom they could petition and ask for help. God is involved. And I just want us to see how easy it is for us to look out in our world and make the mistake that many have made with Esther and believe that God is not involved. And think that it is just chance and accident, the natural processes that God doesn't care about. And that's just not true. God does care and God is involved. God was involved in Esther's life. And the thing that we need to understand, God is involved in our lives. God cares about us. There's a few lessons that I want us to learn from this. Lessons for us, and we'll move through these very quickly. The very first lesson is that God is involved. Understand that. Remind yourself. You are waking up in God's presence today. You are walking in God's presence. God is here and God is involved in your life. No matter what is going on in your life, God is here. God is involved. Perhaps we could think of nothing more natural than the rising of the sun and the falling of the rain. But do you remember in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, or verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, we can provide the scientific explanation of the natural process by which the sun comes up every day and goes down every night. We can go to our science classes and learn how the universe is formed and why it works this way, and we can give all of those explanations. But why does the sun come up every morning? I'll tell you why. Because God makes it come up every morning. And if God removed His powerful hand, the sun wouldn't come up. And we can talk about weather patterns and we can talk about the science behind what causes the rain to fall. And we can, we can find out all the natural explanations of the processes that cause this rain to fall. But who makes the rain fall? God does. And if God were to remove His powerful hand, the rain wouldn't fall. In Acts chapter 17, as Paul preached on Mars Hill, in verse 28, he said of God, in Him we live and move and have our very being. And we can study anatomy and we can look at how the, the muscles work and how the bone structure causes us to be able to stand and we can talk about oxygen and blood and brain and lungs and heart, but in the end, why do we live, move, and have our very being? It's because of the grace and mercy of God. And if He were to remove His gracious and merciful hand, we would no longer be able to live and move and have our very being. God is involved. Brothers and sisters, we're breathing oxygen in and out right now. Do you know why that is? That's because of God. And if God were to remove His hand, that would stop. The only reason there are natural processes is because God has done that. And since God is involved, we need to learn to cast our cares upon Him. 1 Peter chapter 5. 
First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Our God cares for us. We need to cast our anxieties on Him. He is involved. He is here. He is walking with us. We're not just going through this life alone. When troubles beset us, we can cast them on God. We need to remember, however, that rain falls on the just and the unjust, sun rises on the wicked and the, and the righteous. Some folks have the idea that because they've had blessings, even though they haven't called on God, that they've been doing it themselves. No, that just means God blessed you anyway, and you need to learn to be thankful for it. But we need to learn that God does care, and we need to cast our anxieties upon Him. The passage says, humble yourselves. Why? Because too often we're arrogant, and we think we're doing this. Well, I'm the one that went to work to make the money to buy the food. I'm the one that plowed the field and planted the seed and watered it. But if it were not for God, we wouldn't have that. We need to cast our cares on Him because He is involved. But we need to do the right thing. We don't need to be shallow. There's a shallow form of Christianity where folks seem to have this idea that they're more spiritual if what they do is just say, oh, I just prayed about it. I prayed about it. I know it's going to be okay. I prayed about it. You know, I know I lost my job, but that's okay. I put it in God's hands. I prayed about it. And they don't ever look for a job. And a couple months later, they're wondering, why why don't I have a job? The doctor tells them, you've got to quit eating those foods. You've got to start exercising. You're going to have a heart attack. And so they, oh, it's okay. I prayed about it. But then they don't exercise. And they don't eat those foods. And they have a heart attack. And they wonder, why didn't God do anything? We need to understand from the story. Esther didn't simply say, okay, guys, go fast for three days and we'll see what happens. Esther said, y'all go fast for three days and I'll go in and I'll talk to him. Why'd she do that? Because she knew it would work? No, because she responded, if I perish, I perish. For all she knew and all Mordecai knew, this wasn't why she was here. But it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing for her to stand up for her people when she had that opportunity. And so she did it. We need to cast our anxieties on God, but that doesn't mean go pray and then sit on our thumbs. That means go pray and then get to work doing what we know is the right thing for us to do today. And then let God take care of the rest. I think of a great example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom had essentially taken over the kingdom already, but he was on his way into Jerusalem. So David was fleeing with his people. And he heard that Ahithophel was going to be with Absalom. And so on his way out in verse 31, he prayed, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But then read what happens in verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and serve Absalom and say to him, I'll be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I'll be your servant, then you'll defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. I want you to notice he prayed, God, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness, but then he did something. Notice what David believed. David believed that if he didn't turn to God, he was going to lose. But he also understood that God would work through him and his choices, and so he went to work. And we need to understand that. God is involved, but when we fasted for three days, it's still time to get up and go do and go into the king. So understanding God's involvement doesn't mean sitting lazily on our backsides. It means getting to work and doing what our God, who is involved, has asked us to do. 
but then we let him do his job. Let God do his job. And here's the fine line, the balance, because a lot of folks, they go beyond just the idea of I'm going to do what's right. They go into anxiety and fretting and worrying about whether or not God's really going to work things out for them. And then they start trying to manipulate things. And, and then they'll say things like, well, I know the Bible says this, but I just don't think that that will produce this, and so we're going to do that, and instead we're going to do it my way. And in the end, they've started now trying to do God's job and fixing everything for God. See, our job is to cast it on God and then do the right thing that he's asked us to do. Our job is not to fix everything. It was not Esther's job to make sure the children of Israel were delivered. It was Esther's job to go in and present the case before the king. That was her job. Deliverance would be God's job. And whether he used Esther or used someone else, it would be up to him. And that's exactly what Esther did. And I'm always reminded of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. In Romans 8 and verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. It's our job to do the right thing. It's God's job to work out the outcome. It's our job to obey. It's God's job to fix. So we need to cast our cares on God. We need to do the right thing, and then we just need to let God do His job. And that's what Esther did. And God did his job, and he delivered the children of Israel. He used Esther, and he used Mordecai. But God did this. Esther did And so we need to learn to acknowledge God's involvement. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 6. In Proverbs chapter 3, And verse 6, the proverbialist says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. In, all your, in other words, we need to take time to acknowledge God, that we're breathing because of God, we're walking because of God, we're working because of God, we're learning because of God, we're saved because of God. We need to spend time acknowledging God for all that He's doing for us. We need to recognize His involvement. We need to understand that the rain falls because of God. The sun comes up because of God. The world is here because of God. I am here because of God. You are here because of God. We need to acknowledge Him in all of that. And then He'll make our paths straight. And we need to give Him thanks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Give thanks in every circumstance. Give thanks in every circumstance. We need to be a grateful people. We need to take time every day to think about the things that God has done and to give thanks for. Write it down. Count your many blessings as the song says. God has done more for us than we can fathom. And yet sometimes we walk through this world like it all just happens all on its own. And we don't acknowledge God. And the final point. We need to honor God even when things don't go our way. Now obviously things went the way Esther wanted them to. But what I can't help but notice is that she said, I'm going to go into the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What I recognize there is that she had come to a willingness that even after she had fasted for three days and all those in Susa had fasted for three days, if she went into the king and he decided that she was going to die, she was going to be okay with that. 
She was going to be willing to surrender to God and whatever His will on that was. She was prepared to accept God's will even if it wasn't what she wanted. And the thing that we need to learn to do is to honor God even when He doesn't do things our way. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, Paul prayed to God three times for a thorn in the flesh. And in verse 9, what he learned, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul asked God to take away the thorn in the flesh, and God said no. And what did Paul do with that? Did he get mad at God? No, he said, you know what? I'm going to boast in God's strength. I'm going to be happy for these things. I'm just going to trust God that His way will work. In Job chapter 1, and verse 21. In Job chapter 1 and verse 21, so much had been taken from Job. But in verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We've got to learn to bless the name of the Lord, whether He does things the way we want or not. We've got to learn to honor Him because He's God and He knows. And He'll make things work out. I just want you to think. For this whole story to work the way it did, when did God start working on this solution? All the way back in chapter 1. God was already working on the solution back then because he knew the faith that Esther and Mordecai would have. God is involved in your life. And sometimes it is hard to see, and sometimes we wonder how things could be where they are if God is involved. But God will get us through, and he will carry us on to victory, even if it means carrying us to victory through our death to this life. God is involved. Don't ever forget that. 